What a great song that one is. That you are healed, that you are whole, that you are called, that you are chosen, that you are highly favoured, that you are anointed, all in Jesus' name. How good. How good. Take a seat. I love a good worship um, stuff up too, where you get the words wrong. And um, it just reminds us that we are imperfect people who are um, worshipping a perfect God. And we are okay to make mistakes and just get on with it. Um, <laughs> I've been saying that for a long time, Pastor. Um, very good. Thanks, Mikey. Just, yeah, could, knew he was going to pull the ring out of that microphone for me. Proactive, I like it. Problem solver, Michael Miko, on the job. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah, look at that. Two, two, two guys jumping up to fix the issue. I like that. Let's be a problem solving church. Uh, that's a whole other message. Let's be, let's be a community of problem solvers. Oh, uh, very good. I'm going to put this over this side, actually. Is that all right? You're all right with that? Some churches you have to get letters of authority from the head honchos to move the pulpit, but I just had to do that. It's not hard, is it? Hey? Uh, Marvellous. Well, I hope the rain doesn't get too much louder. As I'm saying that, it probably will, Um, but let's do our best to um, allow God to cut through the noise um, and for his words to land um, in the sweet spot of our heart where he wants to uh, do a work in us today and every day and ongoing as we uh, press into his word um, together. So I'm excited to launch into um, this new series that we're doing, Unhurried, um, another magnificent piece of work by our mate Greg. And uh, more than that, though, I'm excited um, and I pray that this will be a time of um, transformation for us as a community, um, both individually that our lives would continue to be on this journey of transformation as the Lord shapes us, um, but also the impacts of what, um, as each of us are changed, um, how that changes us as a collective as well, and how that changed us goes on to change the world. Um, And I'm excited for that transformation as we give ourselves to um, what is being coined as the ruthless elimination of hurry from our lives. Thank you, Dallas. And this is kind of fresh ground. We haven't preached through a book um, that isn't in the canon of Scripture like this for quite um, some time. But be assured, though, that this topic um, presents um, for us deep theological considerations Um, It calls us deeper into God's Word. It invites us graciously toward communion with Jesus and um, to one another. And it it calls us to practically integrate the ways of Jesus into our everyday lives. And I take solace in the fact, and this ruthless elimination of hurry comes from an author. Um, He wrote a book by the title, um, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, uh, John Mark Comer. And I take solace as it appears, uh, he appears to be the antithesis of what success has been made to look like in Christendom, Um, especially for Christian leadership. At least he appears that way now. And if you are reading along and you're going to follow along in the book, you'll get some of his story and I'll give you a little bit of it um, as we go this morning 
um, as well. But I take um, great refuge in that, um, albeit we're um, in God's Word together, we are shaping this series around um, the unhurried book that John Mark Comer's put together. Um, and from all counts and measures, uh, is a guy of integrity who isn't just writing about these things, but is living them out. And I'm trying not to this just to be like a... Um, a, a book review, um, but just by way of setting us up a little bit. Um, I've found that John Mark Comer's writing is not self-serving, nor does it proffer his wisdom as the way to emotional health or spiritual vitality, but he continually points his audience, as in us, back to Jesus, relying on Jesus' words and Jesus' ways to be the formative, shapely voice that cuts through the busyness and noise of our lives. And so at times I'll be quoting um, this book, his book, Verbatim. Um, so just assume that anything really good I say that is the, whole, is the Holy Spirit first and then John Mark Comer and then any scraps left on the table, you can say they're probably Dave's. Um, so at times I'll add commentary to his thoughts. Um, we'll be tackling scripture that is unpacked in his uh, book. I'll introduce more scripture where it may be relevant. Um, and luckily for me, you don't, or for you rather, and for me, you don't have to hear my voice every week for the next six weeks, um, is that we have some of the sages of living an unhurried life also sharing with us. Um, in a few weeks, Bretto's going to share on silence and solitude. Daz Farrell's going to share on Sabbath. Um, and these are um, men who I look to in my life who have learned the unforced rhythms of grace and have, um, for me, I can look and go, here are um, people who are just not talking the talk but walk the walk um, in an unhurried manner as they live out their lives and journey of faith. And so usually at this point I would say buckle up or hold on to your hats or giddy up. Um, but maybe perhaps more appropriately for this series we just say settle in. Let's just settle in. Let's not be in a rush. Perhaps if you want a cup of tea, go and make yourself a cup of tea and you get a blanket and come on back. Um, that, may that be our posture uh, with God over this next six weeks, that we would settle in to what he's doing. We wouldn't be rushed in what he's saying, that we wouldn't be rushed to go and radically transform our lives right now. Let's do it today. But we would settle into the unforced rhythms of grace as God is at work in us. And I believe this series is timely for us. Um, I often can't see in the moment why God leads us to speak to the things that we do. But um, hindsight is always a beautiful thing, particularly when you look back over history with the lens of what God has been doing. And I look forward to the coming weeks when we can look back at our own lives and look back at what God has been doing among us and be wowed by his activity um, in how he is shaping us um, in this way of the unhurried life. And I have a deep sense of God's calling for us to push into this call and intent of what John Mark Comer wrote in his book of how to stay emotionally healthy and spiritually alive in the chaos of this modern world. I mean, if that doesn't pick our interest um, I'm not sure what will. How do we stay emotionally healthy and spiritually alive in the chaos of this modern world? And so I'll be unpacking this idea of hurry a little bit this morning, where it came from, what hurry is doing to us. We're going to do a little bit of heart diagnosis, and I'll call you to an invitation to another way. 
Um, but first, why this topic? I mean, if you're a purpose-driven person and you're, you're like, yeah, but why? Um, why talk to this? Um, I've just a little bit, a few ideas here. This year we're talking about um, the theme for our year is hunger and thirst. Um, that as a church, we are, we, are, we are growing and nurturing a hunger in our hearts and our souls and a thirst deep within us for the presence of God and for the plans of God. And I know firsthand that when I am in a hurry, it is like an appetite suppressant for what God is doing in my life. That I can grow so hungry for other things and so distracted by other things that being in a hurry suppresses our hunger and our thirst for God. And I think it's important that we um, come, come around to another way. I also believe that hurry in our lives dilutes our missional presence in our community. That when people look at our very lives, I wonder if they're asking the question, I want to be like them. Or is there a, a, have, have we assimilated to our culture so much that we're just as busy as everybody else? You know, is hurry, is our hurriedness and the busyness of our life, is it different? Are we, are we going to a different pace and a different cadence to the world? And thirdly, I think that being in a hurry blocks up the internal plumbing through which love and compassion throw, flow through our lives. And so if remaining hungry for God and thirsting after His presence and purpose in your life is of high importance to you, knocking hurry on the head will be of great help to you. If you have a deep passion for sharing the good news of Jesus with those in your life who don't know him, and if being on his mission and playing your part in seeing his kingdom culture transform the places that you live and that you work and that you play, I think that showing hurry the door of your life and asking it to leave and not to return would aid in that mission significantly. If being a receptacle of the love of God, if being a vessel that receives love and can be loved and to allow kindness and compassion overflow, if that is what you want, then I think this will be handy. That eliminating hurry will be handy. And if you're feeling spiritually constipated, relationally blocked up, I believe telling hurry to pack its bags and get nicked perhaps will be the spiritual metamucil that you need to get things moving again. Now there is a work of unhurrying our lives that I believe is pivotal in you and I walking, and I say walking, not rushing, not hurrying, walking with God into the fullness of life that he has for each one of us. That the peace and the love and the joy that God is working at toward us experiencing more of is perhaps on the other side of ruthlessly eliminating hurry from our lives. If you were here last week, George Snyman from Hands at Work, he shared so amazingly. Uh, he summarized his thoughts on why he loved what we that we were doing this series and what our problem is. We are here. Did you hear it? He said, your problem is that you have too much on your menu. That you have just kept adding thing after thing after thing after thing to the point now that you don't know what to focus on. And if you were like me, you took a long, slow chew of your bacon and egg roll as you processed the truth that is the reality of our lives. 
that have we just kept adding thing after thing after thing after thing to the menu? I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes I go to a restaurant and I open the menu and it is like exhaustive. One thing after the next and I'm just not sure what to order. And you stand in the line at the, you know, if you're at the pub and you start asking the person in front of them, hey, what are you getting? Just because you're not quite sure what decision to make. You know, we have added so much to our lives that we don't know what matters most and we don't know what to focus on. And in preparation for this series over the last week or two, the amplification of this in my own life has been tangible. I have found myself stretched with my time. I found myself uh, frozen in front of supermarket shelves with decision anxiety. Maybe you've had that where you're thinking, I don't know what to cook for dinner tonight. And you start like rolling through all of the things that would make this decision really easy, but yet you still find yourself staring blankly at all of the things going, I'm not quite sure. And sometimes that happens to me. Maybe it happens to you. I found myself distracted. I have found myself procrastinating perhaps more than usual. I've forgotten to reply to important messages that people have sent me this week. I've noticed how in even small ways the insidiousness of hurry um, creeps out of me, realizing how often I say to my kids, hurry up. I mean, not that that's not warranted most of the time. I mean, they take half a week to have a shower and a month to eat breakfast. It is warranted at times to tell them to hurry up. Nonetheless, I've been acutely aware of the joy-robbing language of pace and speed and hurry that comes out of my mouth. Come on, hurry up, we've got to get there. Hurry up, kids, get out of the shower. Hurry up and finish the book. Hurry up and finish your dinner. And George was right. There is a lot on the menu of my life, and chances are there is a lot on the menu of yours. And so I humbly invite you along on this journey of ruthlessly eliminating hurry from our lives not because I am the Jedi Knight of the slow life, but because I am a work in progress, that I am working this out as I go, that I need to unhurry my life just as much as anybody else. And so let's pray to those ends. Father, I pray that as a result of pressing into your word and becoming curious as to what you are doing in us. Father, I ask that, you would, um, that your peace and that your joy and the love that you have for us uh, would become so felt and so real and so tangible. Father, that the, the blockage of hurry and rush and busyness and get things done, Lord, I pray that that would become less, that you would, in fact, clear the pipes of our lives that become blocked up because of hurry. And I ask that we would receive afresh your love as you fill us, as you overflow from us. And Father, that we would know that you are a God who loves us so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is objective truth that the world has changed and will continue to do so, most likely at a rate of knots that is exponentially quicker than anything we have already seen, which ought to scare the pants off us. 
John Mark Coma, which I've called JMC. Can I just shorten? He's a long name. Uh, let's call him JMC. If I call him Johnny, I'm sure he won't be uh, all too offended. But Johnny, at the outset of his book, gives some historical diagnosis of how speed entered the human story. He says that in about the year 200 BC, um, he recalls the moment that the sundial was invented. That this was the first time that humans had anything other than the rising of the sun and the setting of the sun to mark time. And when the sundial was created, there was an apparent disdain of this newfound way of breaking up day and night into chunks of time. And a guy named Plautus wrote a poem, and he says this, The gods confound the man who first found out how to distinguish hours. Confound him too, who is in this place set up a sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small portions." May the gods confound the man. Now, if you're running late next week to something, maybe just, just declare that. The gods confound the man that so wretchedly cut my day into small portions. Now, fast forward to the monks and our well-meaning spiritual ancestors who played a key role in the acceleration of Western society. In the 6th century, St. Benedict he organized the monastery around seven um, times of prayer every day. And by the 12th century, the monks had invented the mechanical clock to rally the monastery to prayer. But most historians would point to the year 1370 as the point that, uh, in the turning point in the West's relationship to time. And in 1370, was the year that the first public clock tower was erected in Cologne, Germany. See, before this, time was natural. It was linked to the rotation of the earth on its axis and the four seasons. You went to bed with the moon and you got up with the sun. Days were long and busy in summer and they were short and they were slow in winter, there was a rhythm to the day, even the year. Life was dominated by agrarian rhythms, free of haste, careless of exactitude, and unconcerned by productivity. And the clock changed all of that. It created artificial time. The slog of the nine to five all year long. We stopped listening to our bodies and we started rising when our alarms droned their repressive siren, not when our bodies were done resting. We became more efficient, yes, but also more machine and less human being. And a guy named Daniel Boston wrote of this, Here was man's declaration of independence from the sun. New proof of his mastery over himself and his surroundings. Only later would it be revealed that he had accomplished this mastery by putting himself under the dominion of a machine with imperious demands all of its own. And when the sun set our rhythms of work and rest, it did so under the control of God. But the clock is under the control of the employer, a far more demanding master. And then in 1879, we've got old mate, Edison. 
and the light bulb that he invented, which made it possible for humanity to stay up past sunset. Crazy, right? Before Edison, the average person slept for 11 hours every night. Can you imagine 11 whole hours of sleep? Studies now pin us at an average of seven hours of sleep per night. And that is, on average, two and a half hours sleep less than just a hundred years ago. I wonder what the next hundred might bring. Will we be so mechanized by the turnings of the clock and busyness in our lives that our grandkids will sleep for five hours? And what started with sundials and clocks has evolved into a technological age that has continued to change our relationship with time yet again. And this time with so-called labour-saving devices. For example, in winter you have to go out into the forest, risk your life being eaten by a wild animal, chop down a tree with an axe using your bare hands, drag the tree back to your cabin, chop it into pieces, and then make a fire again with your bare hands. And now all you have to do is go to the corner over here where the air conditioning panel is and push the up arrow a couple of times and wooshka, warm air. We used to walk everywhere. Now we have cars to get from place to place in a hurry. We used to make all our food from scratch. Now we have takeaway. We used to write letters by hand. Now we have email and WhatsApp and Messenger. And now the emergence of artificial intelligence like things like chat GPT or whatever it is. And you can talk to this thing and it will just write things for you. It's like, hey Siri, but on roids. Hey Siri, give me a message on unhurried. I mean, this is what it came up with. Now, all of this reached a climax in 2007. You might be wondering what happened in 2007. Let me tell you. This is the moment where history books, uh, when written, will point to 2007 as an inflection point on par with what happened in 1440. And 1440, of course, was the year that um, Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press, which set the stage for the Protestant Reformation and the Enlightenment, which together transformed Europe and the world. Historians are going to put 2007 on par with 1440. At 2007, of course, was the year that Steve Jobs released the iPhone into the wild. It was also the year that Facebook and Twitter emerged. It was year one of the cloud, along with the App Store. The year Intel switched from silicon to metal chips and a list of other technological breakthroughs all around 2007, which is the official start date of the digital age. The world has changed dramatically in just a few short years. There are currently 6.8 billion smartphone users in the world out of 8 billion people. 6.8 billion. That's like 80% of the world are now using a smartphone. 
In 2021, studies pinned us at an average of three hours and 54 minutes spent on our phones each day. Three hours and 54 minutes. And I could not preach this without the integrity of looking at my own screen time thing in my phone settings, which I'm deeply encouraged that I'm at three hours and 22 minutes below average. You beauty. Still going all right. But that is a confronting statistic in my life. Three hours and 22 minutes every day of my life, there is something demanding my attention that is typically not God. It is typically the ring and the ding and the bell of hurry respond to this or do that or can you or be here or be there or don't forget the average iphone user touches his or her phone 2617 times a day in 1936 a clever cookie named aldius huxley almost prophetically wrote of man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. He envisioned, listen to this, a future dystopia, not of dictatorship, but of distraction, where sex, entertainment and busyness tear apart the fabric of society. And here we are, after a millennia of slow, gradual acceleration in recent decades, the sheer velocity of our culture has reached an exponential fever pitch. And so the question is quite simple. What is all this distraction, addiction and pace of life doing to our souls? If you've begun reading the book, which I encourage you to do, John opens his book with an autobiography of the epidemic of hurry and shows how a hurried life played out for him. In his 20s, he began a church that grew quite quickly, became a multi-site church where they were growing by a thousand people every year for seven years. The location that he was pastoring had just added a sixth service on a Sunday and he was preaching at every one of them. I mean, one's enough for me. <laughs> the location he was pastoring, oh, sorry, had six services. Um, he recalls on one Sunday night getting a ro- ride home from church in an Uber. Uh, yeah, anyway, it's interesting enough. And his head against the window seeing the day as a blur, recognizing his emotional, mental, and spiritual tiredness. He recalls that he got home that night and he chowed down on what was invariably a late dinner. He couldn't sleep. He had that dead tired but still wired feeling. He cracked open a beer, sat on the lounge, and just started watching kung fu cartoons that he'd never watched before. And night after night, this became his routine, wondering if this feeling was the harbinger of mental illness in his life. He describes himself in, the, in his book as feeling like a ghost, feeling half alive and half dead, 
living with an undercurrent of anxiety, a hint of sadness, and just feeling spiritually blah, hollow and empty. On one hand, he thought he was living the dream for a young pastor. You know, this high-speed, fast-growing church was evidence that he was successful. Only this was by all of the wrong metrics. Church size, book sales, invites all over the globe. Yet as he took a look at the man in the mirror, he saw an emotionally unhealthy, spiritually shallow, married out of duty and not delight, unavailable dad who was stressed out, on edge, snappy at those he loved most, unhappy and always in a hurry. And perhaps you've had a moment or a season of life where you can relate. I know I have. Moments where I've had that look at the man in the mirror and to see some of those same things. And wisely, John reached out to a trusted friend and mentor, also named John, confusingly for us, John Ortberg, who, who had traversed the terrain of success in ministry. And they went out for lunch and Coma began firing off all manner of questions to help with this malaise that he was feeling. During their lunch, Ortberg recalls a phone conversation with a mentor of his own, who he had once asked very similar questions along the lines of what did he need to do to become the the him that he wanted to be. And his mentor on the other end of the phone, Dallas Willard, replied, mate, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. John Ortberg said to Dallas Willard in that moment, well, what else? To which came the response, there is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Perhaps you're sitting here thinking today that this is all just wishful thinking. You take stock of your own life thinking that this is maybe a reaching for some kind of idealistic dream where life is all rainbows and unicorns. Or perhaps you're thinking, Dave, you have no idea what it's like to be me. You have no idea what it's like to be a teenager in this world trying to keep up. You're right. I don't know what it is to be a teenager in our world today trying to keep up. You might be thinking, Dave, you don't know what it's like to have the pressures of running your own business and the livelihood of so many other people at stake. You're right. I don't. You might be thinking, Dave, you've got no clue about the pressures that I face managing end-of-life care for sick or elderly family members. I don't. I mean, this call to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives is not a call to rid ourselves of all of our responsibilities, all of our tasks, all of our commitments. It's not a call for us to sell our homes, sell our kids, our cars, our bikes, move to Nimbin, start a barefooted kumbaya singing community. 
that sits around drinking mung bean milkshakes, smoking all the garden herbs. Truth is, busy and hurry come in many shapes and sizes and forms. We each have our own story to tell of what hurry and busyness looks like. We all have unique circumstances that surround our lives from the youngest through to the oldest. Coma tells us that the problem isn't having a life that is very full of things that matter. The problem isn't having a lot to do because Jesus shows us that. What the problem is, is when we have too much to do, that the only way to keep up is to hurry. And a bloke named Michael Zigarelli conducted a survey of 20,000 Christians, a worldwide study. And in their responses, as he dug into them, he identified busyness as a major distraction from spiritual life. And he gives us five brief points. And he says, it may be the case that Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry and overload, which leads to, to God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which lead to, three, a deteriorating, deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to, number four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how we live, which leads to number five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry and overload, and then the cycle begins again. And this cycle and this narrative of hurry is the antithesis of the Christian life. God's call for all people in all places in all cultures, in all nations, in all seasons of life, in all time, is what? Mark 12.30, to love Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. I mean, can we truly love and be loved when we are running on the treadmill of a busy and hurried life? Johnny cuts to the chase in his book and suggests that hurry and love are incompatible. And self-reflectively, he says, all my worst moments as a father, a husband, and a pastor, even as a human being, are when I'm in a hurry late for an appointment, behind on my unrealistic to-do list, trying to cram too much into my day, I ooze anger, tension, a critical nagging, the antithesis of love. And I don't think anyone here could attest to the opposite of his experience. That our capacity to love and to be loved, friends, is to a large degree in direct correlation to the pace at which you and I live our lives. 1 Corinthians 13 is the manifesto of love and it begins describing love. The very first word that Paul uses to describe what love is what? Patient. Love is patient. Japanese theologian Kasuki Koyama said wisely that God walks slowly because he is love. If he is not love, he would have gone much faster. 
love has its speed. It's an inner speed. It's a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It is a slow, yet it is Lord over all other speeds since it is the speed of love. I mean, we don't like slow, do we, Bretto? When a movie is slow, we get disinterested. When the cafe service is slow, we get angsty. When the traffic is slow, we get road ragey. When we're waiting for the hot water even to come through our pipes, we shake our fists with shivering disdain. I mean, what we have been told, and perhaps the message we pass on, is that slow is bad and fast is good. But friends, as people of the way, as followers of Jesus, as citizens of his kingdom and not citizens of this world, we are called to walk to the beat of a different drum and a slower beat at that. Corrie ten Boom once said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. And Coma points out that sin and busyness have the exact same effect in our lives. They cut off our connection to God and to other people, even us to our very own souls. It's not easy to not be in a hurry. That's reality. It's just not easy. We live in a culture that has been shaped over the last few centuries that values busyness, that creates hurry, that celebrates pace. We're not just consumers anymore, but we have become ourselves the product. It turns out that our attention is for sale along with our peace of mind. Not only does hurry keep us from the love and the joy and the peace of the kingdom of God, which is at the very core of all that we as humans crave, but it also keeps us from God himself by simply stealing our attention. A guy named Walter Adams, who was once the spiritual director of C.S. Lewis, said this, To walk with Jesus is to walk with a slow, unhurried pace. Hurry is the death of prayer and only impedes and spoils our work. It never advances it. And it's not just spiritual writers from a century ago ago who are writing about and claiming that our life's speed is out of control and dangerous. More and more experts are weighing in. Psychologists and mental health professionals are now talking about an epidemic of the modern world called hurry sickness, as in they label this thing as a disease. A disease that has been described as a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster and faster and getting flustered when encountering any kind of delay. Sound familiar? Maya Friedman says that it's a continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. Now, Friedman was a cardiologist who was the one who originally coined the phrase hurry sickness after noticing that most of his at-risk cardiovascular patients were displaying a harrowing uh, sense of urgency. And he said this back 70 years ago in the 1950s. 
So hurry sickness, how do I know I've got it? 10 symptoms of hurry sickness, to which I'm adding no commentary other than a few brief couple of words. <laughs> Number one, irritability. You get mad, frustrated, or just annoyed way too easily. Symptom number two of hurry sickness, hypersensitivity. All it takes is a minor comment to hurt your feelings, a grumpy email to set you off, or a little turn of events to throw you into an emotional funk and ruin your day. Number three, restlessness. When you actually try to uh, slow down and rest, you can't relax. Work work a holism or just non-stop activity. When you just don't know when to stop or worse, you can't stop. Number five, emotional numbness. You just don't have the capacity to feel others' pain. Number six, out of order priorities. You feel disconnected from your identity and calling. Number seven, there is a lack of care for your body. You don't have time for the basics. Number eight, escapist behaviors. When we're too tired to do what actually is life-giving for our souls, we each turn to our distraction of choice, overeating, overdrinking, binge-watching Netflix, browsing social media, surfing the web, looking at porn, Name your preferred cultural narcotic. Number nine, slippage of spiritual disciplines. If you're anything like me, when you get over busy, the things that truly are life-giving for your soul are the first to go rather than the first to go to, such as quiet time in the morning, scripture, prayer, Sabbath, worship on Sunday, a meal with your community, and so on. Number 10, isolation. You feel disconnected from God, others, in fact, your very own soul. This is the one test in my life that I wish I didn't get 100% on. That in some form or another, though rarely, if ever, all at once, thank Jesus, that any one of these symptoms of hurry sickness I suffer from. Yes, your pastor is a human too. (laughs) We all at times to varying degrees and intensities and in so many different forms, and the way these things manifest in our lives, we suffer this disease of hurry sickness. And Thomas Thomas Merton once called the rush and pressure of modern life a pervasive form of contemporary violence, to which Comer says that violence is the perfect word. Hurry kills relationship. It kills joy, gratitude, appreciation. It kills wisdom. Hurry kills all that we hold dear. Spirituality, health, marriage, family, thoughtful work, creativity, and generosity. Another smart cookie, he observed that a successful life has become a violent enterprise. We make war on our own bodies, pushing them beyond their limits. War on our children because we cannot find enough time to be with them when they are hurt and afraid and need our company. War in our spirit because we are too preoccupied to listen to the quiet voices that seek to nourish and refresh us. War in our communities because we are fearfully protecting what we have and do not feel safe enough to be kind and generous. War on the earth because we cannot take the time to place our feet on the ground and allow it to feed us, to taste its blessings and give thanks. May worship and joy start with the capacity to turn our mind's attention to the God who is always with us in the now. As followers of Jesus, it is our main task and also the locum of the devil's stratagem against us 
The modern world is a virtual conspiracy against the interior life. And when we uncritically hurry our way through our digital terrain, we make the devil's job relatively easy. And regardless of our income levels, our attention is our scarcest resource. And Jesus wisely said that our attention, that our hearts will follow behind our treasures. And usually we interpret treasure to mean two basic resources, time and money, but an even more precious resource is our attention. In the end, your life is no more of the sum of what you gave your attention to. And that bodes well for those apprentices of Jesus who gave the bulk of their attention to him and all that is good and beautiful and true in this world. But it doesn't bode well for those who give their attention to the 24-hour news cycle of outrage and anxiety, of emotion-charged drama or the non-stop relentless feed of celebrity gossip and cultural drivel that comes to us through our screens. And Ortberg lays it out rather starkly. For many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. Friends, I am not rushing to a solution today, and nor is God, because that would be a little bit ironic, wouldn't it? So my invitation to you is to give your attention to your heart over these coming weeks, to give your attention to what the Holy Spirit is prompting within you when it relates to all of this that there may perhaps just be one small bit in all of these things that we share that God's just pushing his finger on. I want you to pay attention just to that one thing because if it's just that one thing God is asking, then pursue it. If there is a big thing, then press into the big thing. My invitation is to listen and to observe your life for the signs of hurry and ask that God would help you simplify your life around what matters most. And more important than my invitation, Jesus has an invitation as well. That's far more important than mine. Matthew 11, 28, Come to me, he says, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor, and who are heavy laden. Come to me, all who are busy. Come to me, all who are hurried. Come to me, all who have number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, or ten, or any combination of them, of hurry sickness. Any, anyone who is heavy laden by this busy world, the chaos of our modern world, anyone who is hurried and busy and can't make sense of what is going on, take Take what I have got upon you. Take my yoke upon you. Take my teaching, take my life, take my wisdom, take my being, take the presence of who I am in your life. 
and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. God isn't about to come screaming into your life today and make you feel guilty and shameful around any of this stuff. That he comes in gentleness to us and he comes as the lowly king to serve us that we would be made more whole. And you will, he says, find rest for your souls. He says, yeah, my, my yoke is easy. And, and what I want you to pick up isn't heavy at all. In fact, it's quite light and it's quite freeing. And so together, over the next five weeks, we will look at practical biblical principles of how to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. We will look at Sabbath. We will look at silence and solitude. We will look at slowing. We will look, look at simplifying. Now I invite you into conversation with me, if you would like. I invite you into conversation with others. I invite you into conversation as a community. Because as we know, this isn't something that just I am wrestling with. It's something that we all are working out together as we go. That my passion would be that we'd be a community of grace, championing one another to the life focused and centered on Jesus. That we would, in fact, become more emotionally healthy as a church. That we would become more spiritually alive as God's family in this place as a direct result of the intentional work that we do in, internally over the coming weeks. And so let's go there together. Let's show hurry the door and find a new way of being with Jesus where we aren't working from a place of hurry and busyness, but we are living from a place of deep rest. And one way that I invite you to take part in this, and this is an experiment, is I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to start a pop-up life group. You may have seen it in Be Connected um, that just goes for the six, week, six weeks of this series. That if you want to join me and others in just having conversation around an unhurried life and maybe a little bit book clubbish, I don't know, if you want to read along, and we're just going to sit for six weeks Whoever wants to be there, it's open to all people, young, old, married, not, who cares, just anyone. And we're going to do it around the fire in my backyard, um, which could get interesting if we all decided to turn up. Uh, if that's the case, then cool, we'll improvise, we'll come up with another way. But if you would like to just join in a conversation in deeper community around this, I invite you to be part of this pop-up life group starting on Tuesday night this week. Um, and if you want to join that pop-up life group, you can put your name and your mobile number on here. I'm going to put it up the back on the table here and I'll send out a message and we're just going to chew the fat of life. And perhaps that idea um, you're like really excited about and a Tuesday night doesn't work. I've got a really novel idea. Start your own <laughs> and invite people to it. It's six weeks. No pressure. Just say, yeah, I'll do it. You don't have to be an expert. Let's just talk about how do we... And there'll be, you know, we can structure it and send out questions and all of these kinds of things. But if we can have these conversations ongoing in a deeper platform than just this, I believe God will continue to work in us even deeper and deeper and deeper again. And so I'll leave this up the back. I'll get Bretto and the band to come up and we'll sing a song of worship to finish this up this morning. 
Um, but I'll pray as we do that. Let's all stand together. Father, we thank you that you are gentle and that you are humble and that you, are, you come lowly to serve us. And Father, we recognize that there are parts of our life and our world that bring you deep grief. And that would be, I, I guess, as you look at your creation that you created to be enjoyed by you and to enjoy you. To be created to enjoy creation and to walk through this life unhurried. Father, as you see what has befallen us with this hurry sickness and the busyness that we all face, Father, no doubt that breaks your heart. But Lord, in all things, you hear the cries of your people. And this morning we cry out and we say, Lord, we want to unhurry our lives. We want to be more awake to your presence. We want to experience your love and your peace and your joy in the way that you intended us to experience it. That we want the promise and fulfillment of the life that you said you came to give us. Life to the full. And Lord, I ask that the enemy that would come to seek and kill and destroy and to steal away the gift of an unhurried life, that he would get stuffed, that he would be gone in Jesus' name, that he has no place here, that the voice of busyness and hurry and pace and do more to be more would be gone. Father, you love us because you love us. For no other reason, you love us because you love us. And Father, may we receive that love and sit in that love and know that love and eliminate anything in our lives, Father, that would distract us from that love. In Jesus' name, amen.